Say good morning, greetings in Christ's name. It's good to be together today. I uh, always marvel how a uh, worship service can take on a different air, just a little bit of a different feel to it. I think that's good. I was telling somebody this morning that we get in a rut sometimes. We come to, ch- come to church pretty much knowing what to expect, and that's not good. I think it's good that we uh, come with anticipation and come to, to worship together. I want to say thank you to those who coordinated the Sunday school time. I know it was a little bit of an unusual situation with uh, different congregations being thrown together. I think our campers this week are doing well, as far as I know. Uh, uh, Rich shared that the youth camp is going well you know, out in at, close to Appomattox, there where our youth are uh, are uh, camping this weekend. Uh, some of my family's there. My wife is over there preparing food for the noon meal. Um, the campers down close to North Carolina are doing well as, as well, I think. The topic of the message this morning is, is a third in a series on uh, running the race out of Hebrews chapter 12. And if you want to turn in your Bibles to verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 12, we looked at the race and, and how we run the race. We looked last time at the discipline that's happening in our lives to help us run that race well. Context of the passage is the perseverance of faith, holding fast to the end, receiving the prize for a race well run. The Hebrew writer describes a great arena where many in the stands are there to witness the runners competing. We are running that race. We're, we are the racers. We are the ones on the track. We've been asked to strip down from our garments that hinder us from running, the garments that weigh us down, the garments that trip us up. And we've been asked to run with perseverance. We've been asked to see hardship as God's tool of discipline to produce within us a harvest of righteousness. The race is a marathon. It's not a short sprint. It is a long race. It is a race that requires patience and perseverance. And toward the end of a race, we start drooping. We start to to, uh, get tired. And the instruction this morning out of Hebrews 12, verse 12 and following, is that we need to finish well. The encouragement is to finish well. There are some very practical instructions that we want to share, Lord willing, this morning on how we can finish well, how we can be be able to receive that prize. The first couple of verses of our text say, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees, make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. We need to be able to pick up those feeble arms to strengthen those weak knees and to run, run well. And that is the encouragement from the writer to the Hebrews. Let's stand together to read Hebrews 12, verses 12 to 17. If you have your Bibles open, I encourage you to follow along. Let's stand together. 
and read this passage. Hebrews 12, verses 12 to 17. Remember the context is is the, the race that's being run. Verse 12, reading from the NIV, says, Therefore strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. You may be seated. This short passage of Scripture gives us some very practical instructions on how we can finish well, how we can run that race for the long run. Good advice. Things we need to pay attention to. The first thing that I've picked up here in this advice is the instruction that is in verse 14. It says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy without holiness. No one will see the Lord. So the first instruction is that we need to pursue peace with all men. If you are going to finish well, In your race, you need to pursue peace with all men. Make every effort. Romans 12, verse 17 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Why is there concern to live at peace with everyone. The concern is that we can run well, that we can finish well. And so many people do not finish well because of the conflict in their lives. Amen. Amen. Conflict. Conflict in their lives. They're not able to finish well. They're not able to run that race well because of all the struggles they have with other people. They're not at peace. There's a constant conflict going on in their lives, in their experience, always having some kind of trouble or other with other people. And the exhortation is here is to make every effort to live in peace with all men. Make every effort to live in peace with other people. That should be one of the checklists that on our checklist to run well is to live in peace with other people. The King James here would use the term follow, and it's an interesting term. It, it means literally to pursue. It's like it's, it's the same term you would use for a, a predator animal who is pursuing his prey. It's to, 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 to run hard, to, to, to reach, reach for something, to make every effort. It's the same term that Paul used when he was writing to the Philippians where he said, uh, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of 
I press on. That's the term. We are to make every effort, make every effort to be at peace. Some of you need to do that. Some of you today are having struggles with someone in your life and you need to make some effort to reach peace in that situation. Because you can't run well when you're always having the conflict thing going on in your life. I want to say that we are Christians. You were born not, not naturally a peaceful person. You weren't born that way. We, we are naturally selfish. We're naturally uh, revengeful type of people. We want to get even. And we weren't born as peaceable people. We weren't born that way. You'll see that with children very quickly. They get into squabbles. And, and they want, their, they want their, their toy or they want their whatever rights. And so they fight with other little children. And, and we're not born to be peaceful. We are selfish, we're proud, and we do like to take revenge as natural people. But we're Christians now. And the Prince of Peace is in our hearts. The Prince of Peace is in our hearts. We're Christians. The Holy Spirit is there and He wants to foster within us an attitude of peace. That Spirit of Peace is, it adorns the Christian. I want to say the effect of righteousness is peace in our lives. To restore harmony. Peace that was broken by things that came in. We are to pursue it, to stretch after it. How do you make peace? How do you, how do you keep peace? I'd like to give you a word picture that made an impression on me as I read it. And that is over in the Middle East. Our, peop our soldiers have been over there for years fighting. And, and one of the things that they're always running into is these roadside bombs. They're always running into these, these bombs that they come across. And if they're good, if they're, uh, if they're fortunate, they, they, they discover the bomb before they run into it, and it blows up. And there is this bomb just sitting there. And they have specialists that know how to take care of that bomb. Do they go up there with a sledgehammer and hit the bomb? Get, we'll get rid of that bomb. No, they don't. They'll, they'll get rid of it all right. But they're going to blow themselves up in the process. No, they, they're very careful, is the answer. They know how to defuse those things, and they're very, very careful. Brothers and sisters, in, in our relationships, if we want to make peace, we're going to need to have great, take great care um, some of the things that we need to use in this careful defusing of bombs is, is humility. That's one of the biggest pieces of advice I can give you until myself is when I have a bomb there that's about to go off in a relationship that I have, and that is to approach it with great humility. Don't come storming in there like a bull in a china shop. Walk in there very, very carefully with an attitude of humility with love, gentleness. 
Who should we make peace with? We should make peace, we should pursue peace with all men. But you say, Sam, you don't know my situation. There are certain people in my life that that's impossible. My boss, for one, is not someone that I can be at peace with. It's just not possible. But we are to pursue it with all men. And it's not always possible. It's not always possible. But Romans says, Paul, to the letter to the Romans, he says, much as lieth in you, as much as lieth in you, make the effort to live in peace with all men and women. Those who don't matter to us, those our neighbors, our boss at work, our co-workers, those who rub us the wrong way, idiots, people out there that are just really irritating. Live at peace with them. Don't don't be don't be uh, don't be uh, taking a sledgehammer there. Our enemies. Well, what are some some actions that we take? What are some peaceful actions that each one of us needs to take to to keep to pursue that peace with all men? I'd have just a couple of things here. You could name many more, and in your case, it may be a very unique unique action that you need to take. First of all, don't we don't fight as as Mennonites. We are we are non we are conscientious objectors to war, so we don't go to war, and that's that's one of the things that I really struggle with. Those who, Christians in our community who who are not non-resistant. How in the world do you pursue peace with everyone with a gun in your hand? How in the world could you do that? I don't think you can, really. Secondly, I think we don't quarrel. We try not to quarrel. How many of you like a good, good, good quarrel? Enjoy a good, uh, good spat? You don't have to raise your hands. There are a few of you here that probably do enjoy it. You don't object to it anyway. You, you like to get into it. Don't do it. The Bible says to pursue peace. And if there's something that you can do to diffuse a situation, do it. My dad taught me that as a little, little guy on up. Pursue peace. Don't stir it up. Don't stir it. Some of you are stirrers. You've got a long stick and there's a pot there and you stir it. You're, you're stirring stuff. Don't do it. As a Christian, we don't do it. That is not scriptural. Pursue peace. Pursue peace. Um, don't take revenge. Don't take revenge for someone who has hurt you. Don't take revenge. Romans 12 again. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't take revenge. Forgive. Forgive. Someone hurts you. Someone does really something bad to you. Forgive. That is pursuing peace. Don't hold grudges. When you stand praying, the Bible says forgive. If there's anything that you see that someone has something against you, take care of it. Don't hold grudges. I know the preachers that say that all the time, but I'm going to say it again. Don't hold grudges. I have to say it to myself. I have to consciously release 
things that I may be holding in my own life, my own experience. Some person I just struggle with, and I, I, I just want to kind of hold a little something there. And I have to say, Sam, you've got to release that. You don't hold that. That's wrong. That's wrong to hold it. And there's certain things that we can do to avoid conflict. One, of course, is, is humility. We talked about that. Diffuses conflict. Pride is one of the biggest things that bring conflict. Covetousness, slander, and gossip. You can stir things up with that. There are arguments that you can keep bringing on. These are things that we need to do away with. Follow the example of our Savior. Verse Peter 2, verse 23 says, When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. The perfect example of our Savior. He could have, he could have done so many things to those who, who hurled insults at him, but he did not. He did not retaliate. Be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. Matthew 5, verse 9. For they shall be called the sons of God. I want to make one comment before we finish this item on our checklist. We don't... We don't pursue peace at the expense of what's right and wrong. We don't do wrong in order to maintain peace. You do as much as is possible, but if it's wrong, you don't do it. I know there's some people feel like they're going to do peace at any cost. I know some men in families today who are struggling, and they're going to have peace at any cost. My dad was a little bit that way, and he was wrong to a fault. I want to have, I'm going to have peace at any cost. Sometimes you don't pay that price because it's wrong. You do need to take stands on things. And that kind of leads into the next item on our checklist. Pursue peace with all men. The second one is to pursue holiness. And that's right from our text. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The second item on our checklist, if we're going to finish well is to pursue holiness. As we do peace, we strain for it. One of the things about holiness is it doesn't happen automatically. In your life, it is not something that happens automatically. You will not get more holy automatically. It is something that we have to strive forward for. We have to pursue holiness. We will not gain holiness by standing still. Sin grows on its own, but holiness has to be cultivated. It's like your garden. Our garden right now is kind of at the end of its usefulness. It pretty much is, and it's just very full of weeds and stuff. They grow naturally. It's the, the, the cultivation of, of, of those other plants that, that requires effort. And holiness is that way. It must be pursued. And the first point in our text is that without holiness, we will not see God. And what is he saying here? Without holiness, we will not see God. I think he's saying a number of things. One is at the end of life. At the end of life, we won't see God. Maybe that's not the primary thing. I think the primary thing is that God is holiness. God is holy. He lives in the holy place. And without pursuit of holiness, we won't go there to see Him. That's where God lives, in the holy place. 
And as we pursue holiness, that's where we're going. We're going to get closer to God. Without holiness, we will not see God. Second point I want to make there is that holiness is the goal of God's discipline. Now, last, last message I shared from this portion of Scripture, we looked at that a lot. God uses discipline to promote holiness. Hebrews 12, verse 10 says, They, our parents, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in His holiness. The word picture that I would like to leave with you this morning with holiness is that at a wedding. I, I struggled with how to share about holiness. And I started reading up on holiness and I started meditating on holiness. And I Holiness is such a huge, huge, huge subject. But as I was thinking and meditating on the subject of holiness, I came across this picture. To me, it illustrates holiness for us. Holiness is at a wedding when you observe a bride and groom. That's what holiness is all about. And that Scripture brings that out. Ephesians 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word and to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So Christ wants to present us, his bride, to himself as a radiant, pure bride. And that's what holiness is all about. And the, the, uh, the qualities of holiness that I thought about is, first of all, purity. Right? Purity is a big thing with holiness because God wants to wash us. He says He will wash us. He will wash us by the Word to make us pure and holy. So the first thing about holiness, the first word picture is, is that of purity. You're struggling with purity in your life. You're struggling with holiness. You're struggling with purity. You're struggling with holiness because that's the two are very related. Purity, holiness. You know, in, in our weddings in American culture, a lot, a lot of times the bride wears white, right? White is a symbol of purity. White is that symbol that, that that's, this bride is pure. This bride is, is, has, has been purified and is ready for this marriage. No dirt, washed by the word daily cleansing. The next part of, of the bride and holiness thing is, is that of excitement. I, I find that a lot of times there's such excitement. If you look at a wedding party, there's just almost a giddiness there. There's an excitement there that, that I think should be present in our lives when we think of Christ. We're excited to be His bride. We're excited by, by the prospect of being close to Him. Shining and radiant, adoring. Thrilled. These are descriptors, descriptive terms for the excitement. The third thing that I, that I thought of is the, uh, 
is the love. The love that we have for our, the bridegroom. And uh, in, a, in a very nice wedding, you go there and you see this bride. And she is just love in her eyes for the bridegroom. Of course, it should be reciprocal. But in, I'm talking about the bride here. Just, just really love. Uh, we sing that song, The Bride Eyes Not Her Garment, But Her Dear Bridegroom's Face. Another term that we use is being set apart, and that is the, the definition for holiness. That bride is set apart for the bridegroom. And in the marriage vows, they ask, Have you, are you free from any other relationship, any other engagement whatsoever? Are you free? Are you set apart for this man? Do you take this man? Are you set apart? And that is what holiness is in our lives. Are we set apart for God? Beautiful. Attractive. Sparkling. Glowing. That is a picture of holiness. I'd like to give a couple of practical things about pursuit of holiness. I think the first one is be hard on self. How are you going to be more holy is you're going to have to be hard on yourself. You know, what, is in, what gets in the way between you and God? It's yourself. It always is. Self is what gets in the way of holiness. Self must be dethroned. Our focus must progressively move from ourselves to Christ. Forget about ourselves and our desires and to learn what pleases Christ. Our old garments must be removed and we put on the white bridal garment to step in to meet the bridegroom. So number one, be hard on self. Number two, yield to God. Holiness is is obedience and submission to God. Yield to God's will. Hebrews 2 verse 11 says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Yield to God, submission to God, obedience. These are qualities that promote holiness. And number three is take time to be holy. We sing that song, take time to be holy, time and effort. We put time and effort into what we think is important in our lives. You put time and effort into what you think is important in your life. I would like to encourage you to put holiness up on that list. For many of you, it's not on that list. And often it hasn't been for me. The thing way up on top of your checklist is to be holy. Pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. That's what the scripture says. Pursue holiness. And it needs to be up there on top of your list. Is to pursue holiness. We to make time for things that we consider to be important. So we've considered two main things on our checklist. The first one is to, to, to pursue peace with everyone that we have to do. Our relationships. The second one is to pursue holiness. And the third one I've kind of oversimplified, but I titled it Pursue Grace. 
I take that thought from verse 15. If you have your Bibles open to our text. Hebrews 12, verse 15, it says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God. Other translations would say fails. Falls short is another term. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. I'd like to highlight the term see to it. The King James would use the term look diligently, looking diligently. It's a term of a shepherd or a, an overseer in the church looking out for someone else. So it involves not only our own lives, but also those around us. So in this pursuit of grace, we're pursuing grace not only in our own lives, but grace in our church fellowship. You are responsible not only for your own running of this race, but for those around you. It's to look out for others. So the first sub-point here is watching out for those who may be missing the grace of God. We should be looking out for those who are missing the grace of God. Now what are we talking about here as far as the grace of God? How can we miss the grace of God? I don't think here he is directly talking about salvation, although it could also apply. But I think the people that he's talking to are, are Christians here in this setting. But he's talking about missing out on the grace of God. Is God's grace out there? Amen. God's grace is there available for each one of us. But we're missing it. We're not living in it. We're not using it. I think that's the concept. That God's grace must be received and God's grace must be desired. God's grace must be embraced. And that is the power to live. The ability to live well. The ability to please God. The strength and power for life. Acts 13 verse 42 says, And Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue and people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. This is a concept I'd like to leave with you today is that we are to continue in the grace of God. The grace of God saved us. But we are to continue in that grace. We are to receive it not in vain. 2 Corinthians 6.1 As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. What are the evidences of not being in God's grace? What are some of the evidence of, of failing there? And I think they're following in our text... Some of the evidences that are in our text there in verse um, 15, 16, and 17, 
are evidences of God's grace not being in a person's life. The first one is bitter roots growing up. Bitter roots growing up. Bitter roots that are growing up in our own heart, perhaps also in our own church. This, this concept here of, of failing of the grace of God is not only in someone's personal life, but also in our, in our church. There's a bitter root in there. People are talking bad about each other. There's, it's down under the surface right now, but the term bitter in, in our modern English is more like poison. There's a poison root that's there. And it is about to grow up. It's about to produce fruit. The second thing that, that happens is, is immorality. He talks about an immoral person. That would be an evidence of missing God's grace, gotten into involved in immorality. Thirdly, it talks about carnality. And he uses the example of Esau, who didn't consider the things of God or things, important things to be important, but considered his, he was a, a carnal person. Very much like so many Christians today, they are involved with the things of the world, but spiritual things don't mean a lot to them. These are evidences that we are not appropriating the grace of God for living. What causes people to do this? First of all is ignorance. We're not aware of the resources that God has given to access His grace for living. We're not aware of the desire that God has for giving out His grace. We have, not, we have accepted the norms of the churches in America today. We're ignorant of the grace of God. Secondly, probably more commonly, is neglect. We're so wrapped up in the affairs of this life that we're not accessing God's grace. We're not opening ourselves to the provisions of grace that God has given us. God has shed His grace abroad, but we're not accessing it. We're not into the Word. We're not into prayer. We're not into the discipline of life. We're not into the help and counsel of others. The third thing, and this is a real big one, is pride. James 4, verse 6 says, but He gives us more grace. Speaking of God, He says He gives us more grace. That's why the Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your gloom, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves there before the Lord and he will lift you up. We're too proud to ask for God's grace. We're too proud to submit to God. Finally, I'd like to encourage us to approach the throne of grace. Hebrews 4, verse 14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. His grace is abundant for every time in our lives. His grace is available. He is a loving Heavenly Father who wants to shed His grace on each one of us. God is a loving Heavenly Father who just loves to shed His grace abroad. And we need that grace for living. We need that grace. We need to ask for that grace. We need to approach the throne of grace. Are you finishing well? These are some practical instructions from the book of Hebrews. Pursue peace. Pursue holiness. Pursue grace. These are the things that elect us, allow us to lift those feeble arms, to strengthen those feeble knees, to run with patience the race that is set before us. These are the things that help us to finish well. We call for a closing song at this point. Shall we?